but I've continued to kind of tweak my investment philosophy as I've made more money, as I've grown and children. But the underlying basis has been I've always spent less than I've made and I've dollar cost averaged into the markets, mostly index funds. Dollar cost averaging is literally like my holy grail. And I've literally been dollar cost averaging into a, a taxable account since I was 22. And so if there was one reason why I have the amount of money I have today, there's no doubt it's that I created that as a habit. You're listening to the Millionaire's Unveiled podcast, where you'll hear the stories and interviews of everyday millionaires. We'll unveil their decisions, their strategies, and their current portfolio allocation. Now to your hosts, Clark Sheffield and Jace Mattinson. Welcome back to another episode of the Millionaire's Unveiled podcast. This is episode number 243. Clark, what's going on in your world? How you doing? Dude, doing pretty well. How are you doing? I'm just watching the uh, NBA finals here and some personal finance note, I guess, on that is they came out and said LeBron was the, what, not first athlete billionaire? Is that what they said? I think the first active athlete that's become a billionaire active. while he's still, yeah. Because okay. Michael Jordan, I think, is a billionaire, but he, I think he became a billionaire after his playing days. Yeah, even though Forbes has <laughs> – I mean, you question how close it really is. It's kind of interesting to think about. Like, do they actually know? There's no possible way, but what is his numbers really? Yeah, I, I wouldn't doubt – I mean, honestly, before they announced it, I thought he probably was already before, but that was – my take on that was, well, he got a billion-dollar contract with Nike. So depending on how you want to value that or what the clause is in there that maybe he wasn't going to get some of that money or something, I mean, the guy, the guy was – you know, if you look at what he's been – you know, what he's made, what he's got, you know, and just houses and what he, you know, obviously there's a lot of tax and stuff he's paying with, with his earnings and whatnot, but he's been a, probably one of the better businessmen or at least notable businessmen while he's been playing and, you know, has made some very, very sound investments, you know, traded some, some, uh, endorsement cash, what would have been endorsement cash, for equity in a couple companies and those have paid really well. And obviously he's been, I think he's owner, part owner of Liverpool and then the Boston Red Sox. So came out and said that he wants to own the team in Las Vegas or be part owner anyway. So be interesting yeah, to see. The NBA expands, right? Yeah. 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 I think Seattle and Vegas are in the mix, but Adam Silver said that they're not expansion talk. Isn't, isn't uh top of the NBA list right now, but I think it's, I think it's inevitable at some point. Interesting to, to see that and you yeah. know, good for him. Good for him. Yeah, agreed. So this week we have Mike. He's uh he's been in sales most of his career. He's got a net worth of four point five million, paid for a house. He's got a little bit in cash and the majority in stocks. He's got a little bit in some bonds uh, and some other investments uh, like REITs and stuff. So super good interview with Mike. Uh, drastically different, you know. There's some we get Clark. We get these emails all the time like, oh, what's the way to do it? And, we have millionaires that do it all in real estate. We have millionaires that do it in just the market. We have millionaires that do it a little bit of both in business and everything else. And, and Mike's a, an example of doing it pretty much in majority in the market. So contrary to, to kind of what Seth, Seth had kind of that last week had that uh, net worth of 1.1 million and uh, broke, broken between some rentals and, and other asset classes. So at any rate, let's get into the interview with Mike. Mike, do you want to just give us a little about your background or what you're up to now? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, thank you guys for having me on your show. I'm honored. Uh, my name is Mike. I'm in the Chicago area, and I've been in a sales career for 17 years. And I have an amazing wife and two little girls. 
and I'm excited to share my story. Awesome. And what is your net worth today? Uh, roughly $4.5 million. Dang. And how is that broken up? Yeah. So um, high level, it is. I have a fully paid for house that's worth about $900,000. i am a big Dave Ramsey fan, so we can get into that. That is about 14% of my overall net worth in portfolio. I have about 65% in stocks or equities as a whole. 45% of that is primarily U.S. and about 20% of that 65 is international. I have roughly 10 to 11% in cash, whether that's an online savings account, large amounts in uh, checking, or in a um, basically uh, brokerage account, but um, the safest aspect of that. And I'll give a little tidbit on that on Fidelity SP. I think it's AXX, but they pay a couple percent for the equivalent of cash, which is their money market account. Then I have uh, roughly 6 to 7% in bonds. And then I believe it's around whatever percent is left, which should be three or four, is in alternatives, which I consider silver, gold, REITs, or Fundrise. And Fundrise is the crowdsourcing uh, e-REITs. Totally. So, so let's rewind here just a little bit as you began this in journey. How has your portfolio evolved? What did it look like maybe when you first started investing and how has it evolved over time to, to where it is today? Yeah. So um, as I started to make more money in sales, I got really into investing because I was making more than I was spending. And I started to read a lot of investment books. I first started to get into Dave Ramsey in terms of paying off debt. So I kind of got that gazelle intense, which he talks about. I started investing quite a bit. I was lucky enough to not have any debt. I come from a, a really affluent family, actually, of two small business owners. So they paid for my college. So I was super lucky. So when I started working, I really didn't have any major debt. So I was able to start investing right away. And I had quite a journey in terms of learning how to invest. So first, I started with my 401k and my employer, who happens to do it through Fidelity. But then as I had maxed that out, I started to look into my own brokerage account and how best to invest that. And then that kind of led me down a path where I started reading and doing a lot of research. So I've read books, but I got very much into J.L. Collins, who wrote the book Simple Path to Wealth. Ray Dalio, if your listeners aren't familiar with him, he wrote a book called Principles, which I highly recommend. And he talks about the all-weather portfolio. So I started to invest on that path. And then my investing approach definitely evolved, though, because I made some mistakes along the way as well um, that I'm happy to share. But I've continued to kind of tweak my investment philosophy as I've made more money, as I've grown and had children. But the underlying basis has been I've always spent less than I've made, and I've dollar cost averaged into the markets, mostly index funds. Um, it started out with more mutual funds with high expense ratios, which I can hit on, and I made a very big shift about four or five years ago uh, to that end, if you want me to kind of dig into that. Yeah, we'll get into that in a, in, in a bit here, but I kind of want to go back to the, to the allocation just a little bit. So uh, of the money that you have invested in in equities, how much of that is in you know tax-protected or, or tax-advantaged accounts? Yeah, so there is roughly $1 million is in um, what you'd call qualified accounts, and that would be my 401k, which has about uh, 700k in it. My wife was a teacher before she uh, stopped teaching to take care of our girls. And she has a 403B that's got about 100K in it. And then we both have IRAs and Roth IRAs. 
we we maxed out our Roth and then moved to Mills. So all of that combined is roughly a million in value. And then another 1.75 million is in um, after-tax brokerage, what I would call bridge accounts. And that is primarily either with Fidelity or Acorns. Those are really the two that I've consolidated to. When did you decide to pay off the house in this uh, journey that you've been on? Yeah. And what I'll say to this too is that I know it's an emotional decision. So I've done the math. I've I've had lots of talks about this, especially with rates so low right now, like at an all-time low. I, I don't think it's for everyone. But what I basically did, we um, bought this house probably about three or four years ago. And you know, after listening to Dave Ramsey for a while and really thinking about it, I just got kind of obsessed with the fact of having zero debt. And so it didn't happen overnight. I didn't just cut like a million dollar check. I started, you know, paying my mortgage off faster, throwing chunks of money at it. And part of this is that we've been in an unprecedented bull market. And I recognize that I'm kind of a student in all the books I've read. And so there was a part of me that said, listen, I'm going to, I'm okay with the cap gains tax I'm going to pay here. I would rather have no mortgage. So I made that decision over the course of like a year or two. And we, when we bought our house, it had a full 30-year mortgage on it. We paid it off very quickly, probably within about two and a half years. So were you making extra payments basically every single month and still doing your investing? Or did you pause the investing for, for that time period while you Both. paid off the house? Both. And so what I'd recommend here too is that Dollar cost averaging is literally like my holy grail. So I, and you know, a lot of other, like Warren Buffett will say this, or a lot of other people say this first, uh, pay yourself first. And so what that means is like, let's just say you make a thousand dollars in a month or $10,000 or whatever it is, take a cut of that and invest it first. And so I was always dollar cost averaging throughout that process. And I've literally been dollar cost averaging into a, a taxable account since I was 22. And so if there was one reason why I have the amount of money I have today, there's no doubt it's that I created that as a habit. And I think it's important to point out, yes, I've made a great, great income. I've been blessed to have the type of sales success that I've had, but the principle doesn't really change. And I share this with my friends too, as I'm trying to become a financial coach, whether you're investing five bucks a month, a hundred, a thousand, 10,000 compound interest is still that powerful and it does work especially if you start early. And so I was literally able to really pay off the house partly because I was doing that and the compounding had worked for me early. And so I was able to have more in those brokerage accounts to actually pay off the house. So Mike, how often would you average in and how much? Yeah. So over the years, it's changed. Right now, I'm averaging about 10 grand a month in roughly. That's outside of... um retirement accounts. So that's after maxing retirement accounts. And we aim to invest or save about half of our take home, our income. So I've been very blessed and doing, you know, incredibly well up until this point. And part of that is some of the principles I learned from the fire movement. But again, this isn't about your income per se. It's all really about your savings rate or percentage. But I would argue it's more important than that. It's your investing percentage. So. I mean, I can tell you a lot of my friends who make good money save some of that every year, but I'll bet a lot of them didn't dollar cost average in all of that every year. And um, that is really, I think, the difference. I think that's what's important. 
And so I want to make that point because it's not just about saving some money regardless of what you make, but it's about getting it to work for you. Yeah, thanks for sharing. So let's talk about what you put money into because that's what you mentioned initially or a few minutes ago is you started investing in high-cost mutual funds and then you had a dramatic change. So (laughs) yeah, as you averaged in, what were you putting it into or what were you putting it into and what are you putting it into now? Yeah, well, so that goes along with another question you guys are probably going to ask. I I was investing with, I can name them, I don't know if I should, but basically an insurance company that sells whole life insurance and investments. And I started by investing a lot with them. My biggest mistake, in my opinion, was buying a whole life insurance policy, which the more research I did on and the more math I did on it, it didn't make financial sense for me. So... When I was doing all those investments with that company, my mutual fund expense ratios were very high. They were in the probably 1% range or higher. I was paying loads on some of my fees. I was even paying a load to my investment guy um, for my 529s. And when I really dug into all this and did a lot of research, I realized that those fees were going to eat me alive. So I did a lot of research and I basically decided to fire my um, insurance agent, cash out my whole life policy, move all of my mutual funds to Fidelity. They're mostly in index and ETFs, uh, within Fidelity. I am still with a managed account within Fidelity. I do pay, uh, 0.5 basis points for them to manage that account. I believe in an advisor, but I, le- I believe in an advisor that's actually helping you and not overcharging you on the fees. Um, and so I made that move probably about four or five years ago. And that was the best move I made when heard about. But personal capital is really a big piece that changed my life because I downloaded it. It literally looked at every single investment account I have, and I have a lot. And I was paying an absorbent amount of fees. And it showed me right away. And I now use personal capital not only to manage my advisor and my own account, but it also cash flows and budgets for me, too. So I'm a huge fan. The two app apps I'd recommend to all of your listeners are Personal Capital uh, and Acorns. And I can dig into why I think Acorns and Fidelity are some of the best too, if you if you'd like. Yeah, go Acorns because I think that's what that's one that's less familiar to everybody. Okay, so I started investing in Acorns about three years ago, and basically what they're kind of known for is you can link a credit card um, or debit card to them. They have these things called roundups. So if you spend money, they'll round it up to a dollar of dollars or something and invest the delta. What's really cool about Acorns is that it's very inexpensive. I think they charge like a dollar a month for the service, which is incredibly cheap, especially if you're investing a lot. But the other nice part is you can also dollar cost average in monthly, any amount you want. The app is very intuitive. And the beauty is they let you pick your risk profile. You can be very conservative and go all bonds. Or you can go very aggressive and go like 100% equities. But the best part is they only use Vanguard ETFs. And the reason I want to share that is because if most people, if you don't know, Vanguard is probably the best investment firm, period, because it's a co-op and no one is out to profit you. That's why their expense ratios are so low. And John Bogle is really a legend for that reason. But so literally you get exposure to any of the asset classes you want. So whether it's large cap, small cap, international, bond, REITs, et cetera, they'll buy Vanguard ETFs, which typically have the lowest expense ratios 
across the board. The only company that's lower is BlackRock from my research, which have the iShares, also very low expense ratios. But Acorns is so awesome because it will automatically dollar cost average you into those wonderful ETFs. And it, it basically will make sure that you keep that asset allocation for the risk parity that you pick. And what's so interesting about Acorns is that I've shared with you, I have a lot of accounts. My Acorns account has been my top performer across the board. Interesting. Yeah, and you do have fidelity with some of the zero fee funds now too. Correct. Yep, I do. So I do. The, the mutual funds, you, you talked about making the shift from the actively managed funds to the index funds. What about some of those more actively managed funds that have lower expense ratios at 0. 0.7, 0. 0.8 and are outperforming the index over the last 20 years or so? Right. So what I'd say is that I'm not, I do believe in some active management, which is why about, I have about a million dollars in active management with Fidelity. And there is, that is not only ETFs that has mutual funds that has many individual stocks. And so I basically have a dual strategy where I'm letting Fidelity manage a more active portfolio for me that has some of those mutual funds that could outperform. I mean, certainly like ARC, if anyone isn't familiar with ARC, what Kathy Wood is doing with disruptive technologies. I mean, there are definitely outperformers and other ways to go about it than just indexing. But I do believe in the power of indexing consistently, so I do both. Yeah, no, it's interesting. And I just ask because you mentioned you're so big, Dave Ramsey, and and do you, do you follow his four buckets of of investing? Um, not exactly. Um, but but pretty close. How much um, do you have in just international? It's about twenty percent. All right, it's pretty so high. Yeah, yeah, you're pretty close. So let me ask you, Mike. I'm curious because I think often. You hear about, you said you grew up in an affluent family. And I think often we hear that, though, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but those that grow up in super affluent families often don't know how to work or don't emulate their parents in, in those specific ways, right? You seem to just start right out of the, out of the gate, though, and just keep this thing going. Yeah. Well, and part of that is a, more my personal money story because my, my father actually went bankrupt and made some very poor decisions with money. And so I learned at a young age how to screw it up. And so um, I really just went the other way. You know, I literally like rebelled against that. So I think that is really a big part of where my drive comes from, too, and the push to constantly invest. The other thing that I think is interesting that I do want to share, something so powerful about investing in an index, especially during COVID, I know some small business owners that have been hit really hard because of the virus. And that is another thing that makes the S&P in an index so powerful that it's self-cleansing and it's really long-term, very hard to beat. And so, you know, for those that aren't real familiar, I mean, a lot of your listeners probably are, but the S&P is self-cleansing in that the 500 largest market cap, most profitable, successful companies will consistently stay in there and keep performing whether your small business does or not, whether you're working or you're sleeping. You know, Tesla just got jumped into the S&P. It's going to keep changing and it'll keep evolving. And that's something that I realized that instead of trying to beat that, if you just ride that, it's inc it's incredibly compelling. So, Mike, let me ask, doing this dollar cost averaging, do you recall when maybe you got to your first mm -hmm. 100K? Yeah, I mean, so I think I hit a million when I was about 30. 
And it was definitely from dollar cost. I've used different sites and apps over the years a long time ago. I used to use Capital One's app when they had one at one point. It changed to something else. Then I went to Fidelity. Then I left Fidelity, went to this insurance company. Then I went back to Fidelity. More recently, I got into Acorns. So I've always been um, using some sort of app or investment vehicle, the dollar cost average. Do you know when you hit those those mile mark those markers though 100k 250 500 roughly I know a million at 30 but I'm trying to kind of back in for some of yeah, our listeners um, what that looked like on, along your 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 swing up in net worth I feel like the I definitely hit over a million net worth at 30 um I think I was about 34 or 5 when I hit 2 million in net worth and then in the last couple of years, that's really sprung up quite a bit because of market performance um, and that continuous dollar cost averaging. But you, you so, don't recall when you hit that first 500K or 250, like in your 20s? It was definitely in my 20s. I definitely, It was definitely in my 20s when I hit the first two or 300K and 500K. And it's definitely true that the first million is the hardest. And then the next couple came much faster mostly because my money truly was working for me. And that's a very good question. I haven't looked at like my exact net worth per my age. I could try and put a little more thought into that. But I would say the 250 to 500 was definitely in the 20s. I was above a million at about 30. And then right now I'm 38. So it's really taken off in the last about three years. Do you have a a, a goal net worth wise down the road? Yeah, that's a very interesting question because um, there's some changes going on with my employer. And um, that is when I got really into FIRE, financial independence, retire early. And there's no way that I'm going to retire. I'm too energetic. I want to keep working. I want to keep selling. I want to keep active. But I definitely want my passive income to cover my expenses 25 to 30 times is what the FIRE community recommends for like a 30-year period. And all that really means, just so your listeners hear this, if you're looking for a number to shoot for and why, if if your portfolio is making, let's say, in an RPAR, or like a Ray Dalio style, less risky portfolio, let's call it 7% or even 6% annually, and you have X amount of dollars, the 4% rule is a study they did with a drawdown amount where you can pull that out of your portfolio and you won't run out of money over a 30-year period. Obviously, it's not risk-free. You might, but considering all the market conditions, all the research, I think it's been since 1970 or something like that, um, you would be in a good position. So my immediate goal is to reach FIRE, financial independence, uh, technically. Um, and then I'd love to, to aspire to grow way past that. I haven't set a number per se, but that is my immediate goal. And what what would that be in net worth for you? I'm pretty much there. I'm pretty close. What's hard is that um, I'm there in net worth, but I'm not there in um, taxable investable uh, assets. So basically, some of it's still tied up in retirement accounts and obviously in the equity of my house. So that would take um, roughly 25 to 30 times my annual expenses, which I don't mind sharing. They're probably about 100K. So you're looking at like 2.5 to 3 million in investable in a full portfolio. I'm basically there now. It's just that I've earmarked a bunch of those accounts for my daughters 
and to fully fund school. And so I want to obviously keep growing so I can fully hit that. Totally. Makes sense. So as as you've gone on this journey, you've you mentioned you've got a, a couple kids and you've put some aside for them. What does that look like? And, you know, you mentioned before the show to us, you've got 529s and some UTMAs. What is the thought process behind, process behind that and, and maybe your approach and strategy with those? Yeah, well, with the girls, um, they have a long time before they're going to need the money. And so I wanted to set up 529s because they're tax advantaged. So each of my girls have a pretty healthy amount in both of their 529s and in two different UTMAs. In the UTMAs, they're invested all in IVV and QQQ. So IVV is the S&P BlackRock fund, and QQQ is the NASDAQ, the 100 fastest growing tech companies. Those are ETFs. I put them in those because long-term, they're, I think they're going to have the best growth and performance. They're a little bit more volatile, as I'm sure a lot of your listeners know. But since my girls are only four and six, they have time, I think, to write out the volatility. And so that was my thought process in terms of picking those funds. Now, the 529s are in. I don't really pick it. It's more of a, it's an age-based uh, account. Yeah, totally. Do your friends and, and family know of your wealth? I would say no. Um, I think they know that I'm well off, but I don't think they know the the details of it. So what's an UTMA, Mike? Explain to that. That's relatively new on our show. It's not talked about often. Explain that for us. Sure. So basically, um, I, the name of the acronym has to do with um, just an underage. It's, it's basically an investment account for someone who's underage. So they're under 18. They will take ownership of it once they hit that age. So they literally will take ownership of it. So the risk there is that I direct all of those investments until they hit that age. And then I'm going to strongly urge my daughters to use those funds either towards school or towards something healthier, a down payment. But technically, the risk there for those listeners is that, you know, then your child will have full access to that money um, on their own once they're of age. And I'm confident in my wife and my ability to make sure they use it in uh, a manner that we think is the right way to do it. But that is also why we have both UDMAs and 529s. That way, there's specific funds for the education. Um, 529s are tax advantaged, and then they grow tax advantage, and then you can pay for college that way and other other school, other types of schooling. Um, but the UTMAs, again, is for a parent can set it up. I believe a grandparent could even set it up, I think. There are, there are limitations, I believe, to the amounts, but um, the big difference is that they take ownership um, at a certain point, the child. Yeah. Yeah, U- Uniform Transfer to Minor Act, right? That's what it stands for. Yeah, yeah. So why no, uh, why no HSA, Mike? I probably should look into that. I believe that the the current healthcare plan that I'm on, I cannot do an HSA. I can do an FSA, which is a flexible spending account, but I don't believe I can do the HSA. Okay. Okay. You have a lower. I could maybe get educated. Um, yes. Okay. Cool. So, yeah, Jay's talked about friends knowing your wealth. Yeah, I was going to ask the same. I mean, it's interesting. Four and a half million here. And and you said, when did, how many years between each? You said the first at, at 30, the second was 33, you said? Probably about 33, yeah. And then the third? Probably about 36. All right. So you're going every three years here or something? 
going every three. Yep, it's been okay. It's been a, a really good run as of late. Yep. And and as much as you're comfortable sharing, what's been your range of household income through your working life? It's gone in the early days. It was in the low six figures, and then best year ever was close to 900k. But on the average, more like um, 300 to 500. And the key for me though is that again, what I've been doing throughout is investing, trying to invest or actually investing 50% of my actual take home of that or more. And I've been doing that really since I was 22. So that is really how the math works. So you, you mentioned to Jace your number and the 4% withdrawal. I mean, do you ever say, hey, look, I'm at four and a half million. I have a paid for house. I could just be done here. <laughs> Funny you should say that. Um, yeah, um, I've thought about it. Um, and to be more personal, my wife um, has suffered from breast cancer more recently. And so I've really put family first. So verse the career, just to be transparent. So yeah, there's definitely more important things than just growing the wealth and the money in terms of family and enjoyment and happiness. And so, yeah, it, I, I've absolutely put a little bit of thought into that. Could I do it today? Probably. I could probably pull it off and we would be fine. Will I do it? Probably not because I'm, I'm pretty much a hard, I'm a pretty hard worker. It's ingrained in me. So I'm going to keep hustling and, and working and doing something, but it makes me feel really good that I, I've done the research and I understand the math that that's a possibility. And I also think it's important for your listeners to know that you should, you should really download personal capital and do the math and set that goal, whatever those goals are. So you at least have a, a clear idea of what you're shooting for. Yeah. Well, thanks for sharing. And you mentioned happiness and fulfillment. What does that mean to you now? And how has that changed through the years? Yeah, it's interesting. Um, so what I can tell you is that, uh, and I, I, I got this from my stepfather who passed away in the last year or two. You know, what he had said to me right before he passed is that, you know, what he wanted more of was time, not not the the money, right? He wants more time. So I'm trying to take that to heart and see if I can find more of a balance between spending time with my family now while I can, I'm young and I have the energy versus working through the whole way and only working. And so... I think there's something to be said for maybe taking a break or defining more of a balance um, and enjoying more time because it's the experiences with my family that really create the most happiness. I think I might have to make some shifts in that department and I'm looking forward to that. And I've been thinking about it, but I don't know when I'll do that. And um, I'm not exactly sure what that'll look like, but definitely exciting to think about. So Mike, I, I'm just curious when you've started to make that mindset shift. And if you look back now, I mean, I don't know how many hours you've worked through your career. I assume you've grinded. You said you like working, you enjoy it and you grind. But do you look back now and say, gee, I'm at four and a half million dollars. I could have enjoyed more of this along the way, or I could have worked less along the way. Or are you happy with the balance that you had? Yeah. Um, I would say it's funny. If you ask my wife that question, you'll get a different answer, right? Um, so, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah. Um, I've definitely worked a ton in order to achieve that. I've worked my tail off of, off in order to, to make this happen. I'm happy with the amount of work I put in and the results I've gotten for sure. But the more I think about it, taking a little bit more time for myself, my family is really critical for the happiness and the balance. And so, um, that's something that I plan on shifting moving forward. 
So I fully expect that my income might not be as high, but hopefully um, my investments will keep growing for me, which I'm sure they will. And then um, I can I can really enjoy that balance and more time with my family. That's really going to be the mindset shift and the goal that I'm going to move towards. And it's a hard thing to do, I think. I mean, have you increased your spending as your net worth and income has grown or has that been hard? Yeah, no, we have. And we live in a pretty high expense area. So the other thing you would ask, if if we were to really try and execute on a financial independence, kind of just go for it, we would have to geo-arbitrage a little bit, like move into a less expensive home or area. And if we did that, it'd be a no-brainer. I think we could do it easily. But um, we have so much, so much family and support where we are now that that would be really hard. And especially with um, my wife just battling and beating breast cancer, I don't think that'll happen soon. But longer term, sorry to hear. I, I by the way, that, uh, thank you. Um, longer term, though, that that would make a lot of sense because the big three in expenses that most people obviously know, but if you don't, I mean, it's usually housing, right? Number one, I think transportation. Is one of them, and what is the third one? Cars. You guys probably know this. We yeah, bought food. a pretty big house, and food, food. There you go, food. Yeah, housing is pretty expensive, and so I think for us to easily and be really comfortable, we could we could downsize, and then um, yeah, right off in the sunset. All right, awesome. Well, let's go into some rapid fire questions here, and then we'll end with a couple other things. So, uh, we talked about expenses. We talked about income. What's been the most expensive car you've ever purchased? We've only bought two cars and we also always pay in cash and we buy the cars that are like one year old. So most expensive was a um, Honda Pilot and it was, I think, about 40 grand. Okay. Um, How many hours a week do you watch TV? Mm, Well, that's going up with COVID a little bit with Netflix and with what my wife's going through. (laughs) I would say, personally, not too much. Uh, one or mm, three or four hours a week, personally. I was going to say, if you're talking screen time for the kids, that's off the charts. So, <laughs> how many times a week do you exercise? I'm a big fan of podcasting and walking, and I do try and do that every day. Um, and I do a lot of walking, uh, long walks on the weekends. So. I was at 10,000 steps a day. On the weekends, I try and kick it up to like 20,000. Wow. Good for you. How many books a year do you read? I like to podcast now. A couple years ago, I read a lot of books. I would say I probably read now about 10 books a year. But um, I get a lot of my knowledge through different podcasts. um, And I listen to quite a bit of those. Okay. I'm just kind of glancing through some of these because we talked about a few of these. Happiness, fulfillment, debt. You you did mention a financial advisor. Do you still meet with and use a financial advisor now? Yeah, I do. So I have a really good financial advisor who's with Fidelity. And I like Fidelity because they're basically a low-cost discount broker that really has everything in terms of their zero expense ratio, FC rocks, which I'm in a lot of. You have to be a client of theirs to get into that or use their robo-advisor for that. But I do like my advisor there. And so he oversees kind of my whole, whole portfolio. And so I am a fan of, of Fidelity and specifically that advisor. Yeah. Does your wife work outside the house? She does not anymore, but 
uh, we were talking about her going back when she's healthy to go back to work and do something too. My girls are four and six. And when our four-year-old goes into kindergarten and is in full school, um, I think she's planning on going back. What role has she played in, in y'all's journey in building this net worth? Um, well, she's amazing. I mean, I would say we're not incredibly frugal. We definitely spend some money and we live nice, but as a whole, we're, we're pretty frugal and she, she's been great in that regard. So it's not like we're not buying a ton of stuff we don't need, nothing like that. My wife's been wonderful in terms of that, that regard, being smart, just being smart with our purchases, making sure we're intentional. Um, and she's just the greatest in the world. She's amazing. Can't say enough positive things about her. And, and, you know, obviously I couldn't produce the way I'm producing if she wasn't fully taking care of our girls. And so that is a really tough job as I've learned when she got sick. So yeah, my wife's been just as big of a part of it as I have been. Totally. Is there anything that, that y'all indulge on with you, with your money? Yeah, we like to, we eat well. So that would be the one thing we like to eat well. And we're in Chicago. There's really good food here. And so, but we do spend money at restaurants or ordering out. That would be probably our biggest indulgence. Totally. So just to wrap up here, Mike, what would be your your final piece of advice to somebody who's just beginning on their journey and and maybe even couple that with a a mistake or two that you maybe made along the way that you would advise those, uh, you know, starting out to, to avoid? Yeah. Well, it's pretty simple. Like, Get educated on your personal finances and grow your knowledge. I say in my little financial coaching session, you know, invest in your future self and life every day. And I mean invest. So that means dollar cost average every day. And again, it can be like a dollar or five dollars. But if you can make that a habit, um, you will be wealthy later. It's honestly that simple. I've talked to so many people about this and the number one feedback is always, well, you make all this money, so it's easy for you. It's not really true. Most people, regardless of their income, at a young age can dollar cost average early. And if if that becomes a habit like brushing your teeth, that would be the, the strongest bit of advice I could give anybody. Okay, appreciate it. That's Mike, net worth of over $4 million. Got his first million at 30 years old, and it's been climbing quickly ever since. Appreciate you coming on the show today. Thanks so much for having me. Appreciate it, guys. Thanks, Mike. Thanks for listening to the Millionaire's Unveiled podcast with Clark Sheffield and Chase Mattinson. For more stories, investment opportunities, and information, check out our website at millionairesunveiled.com. See you next time when you'll hear from another everyday millionaire.